As we continue to make our way through uh, this first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And so we'll be in chapter 5 today. Uh, We'll be looking at the first 11 verses of this um, part of chapter 5. And so in your copy of God's Word, if you'll look there with us as we uh, begin today by reading through these 11 uh, verses together. You follow along with me, beginning there in verse 1. It says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, we started off this year in the book of Genesis. We're currently in a, in a uh, breaking point there in uh, Genesis, so we've paused for a moment to consider these two letters, but uh, we started this year off in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, this essential truth that we believe as Christians that God is the creator of all things. And as we walk through Genesis at the first part of this year, we considered regularly the the grand narrative of Scripture, the story of redemption, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so it is fitting in God's providence that today we consider together here in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians the day of the Lord, because in a way, as we look at January and where we are now, that we have come full circle. We have seen creation fall. We've heard of the promise of redemption in Genesis. We know of redemption that comes through the blood of Christ at the cross. And here we consider this climactic moment in history that will be the beginning of restoration, this new heaven and new earth that will come and be established. Just as creation is essential to who God is and what we believe about him, so too is the coming of Christ. Um, This is demonstrating to us the purposefulness and the, uh, the, the unity that God brings to creation, that he is sovereign over all things and everything happens perfectly according to his Will And this is a day that he is set to come according to that will. Um, it, it, as we think about the worldviews that we see in the world today, and this Christian worldview that we hold to, that 
Um, God created all things and he will bring everything to order according to his will. Uh, There there are different types of views of the world that we live in. There is more of a, a linear type of view of the world that simply sees us as particles and goop that are floating through space in the universe on a a trajectory that has no purpose, no end in sight. It's very empty, very purposefulness. Um, We also consider maybe a Hindu view of the world that is more circular in its thought, that uh, everything is in this just constant state of perpetual motion. You think of reincarnation. Again, there's no purpose to the world in which we live in. And yet, as we consider the day of the Lord, this coming return of Christ on this day, we see the purpose of God in creation. We see that there is hope for those who are in Christ. And I believe we see that there is comfort to be found as Christ's church in this world that we live in even today. As Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, um, he was dealing with specifically an issue that the church was facing in regards to the day of the Lord. We will touch on this more when we get to 2 Thessalonians, as the text today doesn't uh, address this issue uh, in detail. Uh, But there was a a teaching that threatened uh, the life of the church in Thessalonica, as there was this idea that the day of the Lord had already come. And so Paul is addressing this in light of that. But primarily, he wants them to see rightly, uh, according to Scripture, what this day is and why it's important for them in their life, the purpose that it brings to their life there in their time in Thessalonica. And we will see that, too, for ourselves today in the world that we live in. And so primarily here, I believe we see in these verses in chapter 5 that Christ's return comforts the church. So I want us to consider three characters, if you will, that we find here in these 11 verses this morning. I want us to first consider the day of the Lord and what exactly that is. And then I want us to see how this impacts and what it means for those who are in the dark and those who are in the light. So I want us to first turn our attention to the day of the Lord itself. Uh, Here in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul points them to something that they already are aware of. He says, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. Um, Paul addresses them in this way because this is something that he has already taught them about. If you remember earlier in chapter 1, verse 10, it says there that they are, uh, he commends them for waiting for the Son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is really important for how we understand uh, 1 Thessalonians and in particular what we see here in chapter 5. Paul made it a priority to teach the church in Thessalonica of the coming day of the Lord. And if you remember there in Acts 17, Paul was not with them Uh, For a very long time. He was only with them for a short period of time. And this says something to the importance of the day of the Lord in Paul's teaching. When he goes to those who are not in Christ, that he's pleading with them to consider the coming day of the Lord, even in his evangelism. This is important to Paul, and it should be important to us. 
And he addresses it to them uh, because it's something that was introduced to him and, and, and the Jewish people from the Old Testament prophets, as we'll see here in a moment. It was something that Jesus himself spoke of. And so what do we know about the day of the Lord in particular in regards to what we see here in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Now, the, you see there in verse 2, it says there, the day of the Lord. This is not just a New Testament idea. This is something that's introduced to us in the Old Testament by the prophets. Beginning in Isaiah, you can read through the prophets, and most all of the prophets mention or address the day of the Lord. And it is a day of darkness. It is a day where Christ will return to this earth in his wrath to seek out the vengeance against those who stand against God, those who are not in Christ, those who are unbelievers. The wrath of God will be poured out on them when Christ comes on this day. It is a dark day. It is a gloomy day, and and the prophets make this quite clear. I just want to read from the prophets in regard to the day of the Lord. Isaiah says in Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Jeremiah says of the day of the Lord that it is a day of vengeance, where God seeks to avenge himself on his foes. Ezekiel 30 verse 3 says it will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Joel 2.2 says it's a day of darkness and gloom. Amos 5.20 is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. And then Obadiah says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your Head, we hear words here from the prophets of doom and gloom. And as the pastor, I'm fully aware that you probably didn't come here today to hear a doom and gloom message. Most people go to church to hear something that's uplifting and encouraging to their souls, and yet the day of the Lord is one that is set by God Himself as a day of righteous, just wrath. It is indeed a day of doom and gloom. Although we might not want to talk about doom and gloom or talk in those terms, it is important for us to consider the reality of Christ's return on this day. Something else that we see here in the passage is that no one knows the day or the hour. Um, We see this in verse 2 where it talks about it it will come like a thief in the night, this day of the Lord. It is sudden. When we least expect it, it will come upon us. Jesus says in Matthew 24 of this day, he says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples come to him after the resurrection and they say, Jesus, is it now that you're going to establish your kingdom on the earth. And Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It is the Father in his authority and his will who has set this time. And so here Paul says it will come like a thief in the night. But this is not unique to Paul. Peter says these very words. In 2 Peter 3.10, he talks of it coming like a thief in the night. And Jesus himself in Revelation 3.3 says, I will come like a thief. 
And so the reason that they already know about this and have nothing else to be written to them is, again, because Paul has already taught them this, according to the Old Testament, according to the words of Christ. This is, if you will, old information, the day of the Lord. It's old information because it's come from the Old Testament. We contrast that to what we saw last week in this um, uh, verse 15 where Paul says, This we declare to you by a word from the Lord in addressing the idea of those who are asleep in Christ, those who are dead in Christ, and the events that unfold where those who are asleep, those who are dead in Christ will be caught up first and then those who are alive will join them in the sky to be with Jesus. This is new information, what What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 is is a mystery. God has revealed this here to Paul. But the day of the Lord is something that the people of God have been told of since the prophets. Something else that we see here is that this event, this day of the Lord, will happen. It is certain that this will come, this day of wrath, where God seeks out his vengeance on those who stand against him will indeed come. Now, there are some differences of opinion when we think about end times theology or the fancy word of eschatology as to how these events will unfold. So last week we considered what we would call the rapture when Christ comes back for his bride and we are caught up in the air with him, and then the day of the Lord. There are some who are going to see that the rapture happens and then there will be a long period of pause before the day of the Lord comes. Just full disclosure, I I believe as I read scripture that these two events are happening more simultaneously. But regardless of how you interpret these things, I want us to see something that is very clear here. These are two very distinct events that we've looked at here. First, Christ will come and take his church out of this world. This is good news for us. The wrath of God will not be poured out on the people of God. Christ has already taken the wrath of God in our place by the blood of the cross. So he removes his bride first and then the day of the Lord will come. And so it's not so much about when it will happen as it is whom these events will affect. And so the rapture, what we looked at last week, is for the church, whereas the day of the Lord is for unbelievers and not in a good sense. This is a day where Christ will come and seek his vengeance on those who are not in him. And in some way, this is good news for those of us who are in Christ. So as we consider the day of the Lord and what this looks like, I want us to then turn our attention to those who are in darkness, as Paul says here, or those who sleep This word sleep has been really important as we've looked at these uh, two chapters, especially beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4. We see the idea of a sleep being presented there, those who are already dead in Christ. And uh, this same word is going to be used again later in verse 10 here of chapter 5. And then he addresses those in verse 6 and verse 7 who sleep in this world, who are in darkness. There is a type of sleep that Paul is talking about here that leads to eternal death. But there's also a type of sleep that we looked at last week that is in Christ waiting for resurrection. And so the object of the day of the Lord is those in darkness. The object of God's wrath on that day are those who are not in 
Christ. Those who are not in Christ are the ones who are in view on the day of the Lord. And so what do we see about those who are in darkness regarding this day? Well, several things. First, we see that those who are in darkness on this day will be living with little to no concern about these type of future events. Look at verse 3. It says, while people are saying there is peace and security. These two words are very fitting because we spend all of our days working to attain these two things, peace and security. I would say that all of human history, cultures and traditions and societies and nations and and kingdoms and careers are set forth to obtain these two things, peace and security, a roof over our heads, food in our children's tummies. We are constantly striving to find these two things in this life, peace and security. Everyone wants peace and security. But the type of peace and security that those in darkness have is a false peace and security. And what we see here, according to the text, is although they think they have peace and they think they have security in themselves and in the created world, it turns out that they actually have neither. On the day of the Lord, whatever they thought they had in and of themselves in this created world will be of no use to them when it comes to peace and security. And so there's some irony here in their thinking of, of possessing security and peace only to find out on this day that they never had such a thing as peace or security. They're living with no concern. Secondly, though, we see that they will be caught off guard. Verse 3 says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. There in verse 4 it says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So the implication is that it will be a surprise, a great surprise to those who are not in Christ, those who are in darkness. When the day of the Lord comes, those who are not in Christ will be shocked. They will look to the skies and they will say to themselves, what is this? Even those who have heard Christians plead with them to consider the coming of the Lord, to repent and believe the gospel, they will still be in shock and surprise on this day. The third thing that we see, though, about those who are in darkness on this day is that there will be no escape. The end of verse 3 says that. They will not escape. Once Christ comes, it will be too late to turn to him. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait for this day. Do not wait for tomorrow. Because on this day, the fourth and final thing we see about those who are in the darkness is that God's wrath will fall on them. If you look at verse 9 there, it says, For God has not destined us, who's he talking to? The church, those who are in the light, for wrath. Meaning those who are in the darkness are destined for wrath, that God has set them for wrath on this day because they are not in Christ. They do not possess saving faith in the Messiah who has conquered sin and death and resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven and will come back on this day. It's also very fitting for us coming out of uh, the Genesis study, the first part of the year, 
taking a pause here in 1 Thessalonians to consider this because we, um, when we concluded that portion of Genesis uh, several weeks ago, we were looking at the flood narrative. And we talked about how in Matthew 24, Jesus compares this day, the day of the Lord, as the day of Noah. And so this is fresh on our minds as a church. This day where God takes a remnant, a family for himself, and he places them in the ark and he closes them in to keep them safe from the destruction that is to come of the flood. And so the rain begins to fall, and it is, it is shocking to the people. They, they have no concern. They're living in peace and security that they've created for themselves. And this rain that they had never seen before in the history of the world at that point begins to come down. And it catches them off guard as that rain continues to fall and the waters continue to rise and it does not cease. It does not stop until the waters cover the face of the earth. And unless you were found inside the ark, you were wiped away by God's judgment on that day. And when we considered the story of Noah, on, I pled with you to consider whether or not you are in the ark. Are you in Christ and that plea of concern is still true today, this very day, that there is a coming day where each of us must answer for our guilt, that God's wrath will be poured out on those who are not in Christ. But the hope of the gospel today is that there is safety and security to be found in Christ alone that he went to the cross and he took that wrath that each and every one of us deserved in our place so that through faith we might be saved from the wrath to come to be spared of this impending judgment that each of us is due because of our sin and rebellion against the holy god so this is most certainly a day of doom and gloom but dear friend there is hope in the midst of the doom and gloom today. There is hope in the midst of the flood. Turn to Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. I want us finally to turn our attention to those who are in the light. Those who Paul speaks of here as being awake and sober. Those who are in the light, in stark contrast with those who are in the darkness, the coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, is always presented to the believer as one of great hope and comfort. What is true for the Christian on the day of the Lord? What is true for those who are in the light on this day? Well, first we see in verse 2 that we do not know when this day will come. It will come like a thief in the night. But where the unbelievers will be caught off guard, although we do not know the particular time or day or season that Christ will come, we are not surprised when he comes. We are living with the type of anticipation that Paul spoke of it in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that he believed that the Lord would come in his lifetime, that we live with this type of anticipation and expectation of the certainty of Christ's return on this day. But it will come at any moment. We do not know the day. We do not know the hour. But we are not surprised when it comes. 
We also see here in verse 9 that our surety, our confidence in that day rests in the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. And there in verse 10 that on that day we will be with Christ for all of eternity. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. Christ has taken wrath in our place already. He says there, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an idea of already but not yet for the believer. We are already saved and in Christ, but we have not yet fully experienced salvation to the fullest. We still live in a fallen world. We still live in fallen flesh. We still struggle with sin. And as we considered last week, we never stop growing in the faith. The Christian life is always about growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And so we see here beautifully over these last two weeks, this week and last week, uh, the, the idea of justification, sanctification, and glorification. These three essential truths for the life of the believer that in faith we are justified. That we stand in good standing before a holy and righteous God not because of our good works but because of Christ's righteousness that's been imparted to us through faith. We are justified. But we are also being sanctified. What we looked at last week, those uh, twice where Paul says there in verse 1 of chapter 4 and in verse 10 that we are to be looking more and more like Christ, that we are to be striving after holiness and love more and more. Verse 3, that the will of God for you is your sanctification, that we are constantly in this life looking to become more and more like our master, like Jesus. But then here we see in verse 9, glorification. That someday for the believer, those who are in the light, Christians, when we leave this earth and pass into the next, we will be made like Jesus. We will be glorified. No more sin, no more death, no more tears, no more sorrow. There is great hope for the believer to be found on this day. Because of the salvation that we will obtain, but also because of the reality that we will be with Christ forever. Whether we are awake on this day or we are dead in the grave, we will live with him for all eternity. There's great hope, there's great comfort in this day for those of us who are in Christ. So, in light of all of that, the day of the Lord, those in darkness, those in the light, how do we as Christians, how do we as a church apply what we've seen here in these 11 verses to our lives today? Well, there's three things that we see here in the text that help us apply it to our lives. The first one you see there in verse 6, and that is this, keep awake. Verse 6 says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake or be ready, be alert. Paul is taking from the words of Christ himself here in regards to this day. Listen to what Jesus said about uh, keeping awake and being alert. In Matthew 24, 42, Jesus said this, Therefore be on alert, for you do not know when the day is coming. In Mark chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus said, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. 
We are to be awake, alert as we wait for this day to come. We, we see here in these verses a comparison between night and day, darkness and light. And so the, the obvious understanding here is that those who sleep, sleep when? In the nighttime. And those who are awake are awake during the day. And so he says to us here that you are children of the day. You are children of the light. And so we do not live this life as Christians as if we are asleep and unawares of Christ's return and, and the, the urgency that comes with this, the anticipation that comes with this. No, we live our lives awake and alert and ready for this day, that we are prepared for Christ's return. I'm sure some of you have alarm systems in your home. If your alarm system has ever gone off during the day, it's not terribly shocking. You're alert, you're awake, you respond immediately to whatever threat it is. Maybe it's a dog that set off a sensor or a child who opened a door. Or It's not very shocking in the day when your alarm system goes off. But if you've ever had your alarm system go off in the middle of the night, you know how shocking that is. You have to pull yourself together. You look at the clock. What time is it? You roll out of bed. You fall on the floor. You're stumbling to find your flashlight, to turn off the keypad, to figure out what's going on. You are in shock. You are, you are confused by what has happened. We as Christians should not live our lives in this way in regards to Christ's return. We are awake. We are alert. We are prepared for his coming. And that this goes back directly to what we looked at last week, that we are striving after holiness, to, be, to live lives that are set apart for Christ in this world, that we look not like the lost and dying world that lives in darkness, but we look like our master, Jesus Christ, who rose and conquered the grave. When he says here to keep awake it's, and be alert, it's not that we're sitting on our couches just looking to heaven, waiting for Jesus' return. No, it means we're walking in obedience to our master in the meantime. So in other words, when Christ comes, do not be caught living like those in darkness. Do not be caught living like the world. Don't be caught living the same lifestyle as those who are unprepared for Christ's return. Dear brother and sister in Christ, take care of your business today. Don't wait to confess your sin tomorrow. Don't wait to set aside worldly vices that have taken hold of your heart and your home tomorrow. Cast those things aside today. Christ is coming. Live for Christ today. The second application there is also found in verse 6 where he says, be sober. So he says again, then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He says this again in verse 8 where he says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Again, another dark and light comparison. People tend to get drunk at nighttime. And we tend to be sober during the day. And again, he reminds us we are children of the day. We are children of the light. And so he says to be sober or to be self-controlled. One commentator helps us understand what it means to be sober. He says being sober means this. It means casting away the cares of the world, which weigh us down by their pressure, and throwing off base lust. Mount to heaven with freedom and readiness, for this is spiritual 
sobriety. When we use this world so sparingly and temperately that we are not entangled with its allurements. Are you entangled by the world's allurements? Or are you obsessed by Christ and his kingdom that is coming? We are not to be bound to creation. We are not to be bound to the dust, dear friends. We are to be bound to heaven where Christ is. And he makes a connection here in this idea of being sober to the breastplate and the helmet. He says there, verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, for those of you who have read the Bible and know the Bible well, your mind probably immediately goes to Ephesians chapter 5, where we see the armor of God, right? But there's some differences there in Ephesians chapter 5 that are important. In Ephesians chapter 5, it's not the breastplate of faith and love. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's the shield of faith. Also, in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us, he commands us to put on the armor of God. So in Ephesians, it's more certainly, yes, an an active role that we daily take to prepare ourselves for spiritual warfare. But here, notice what he says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This here is more of a reality that is sure and true for the church in Thessalonica. Those three words should sound really familiar to us. Faith, Love and hope. Why? Because if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 3, Paul commended them for these three things, right? Verse 3, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. And we talked about how these are markers of the Christian life. They are always together in the life of the Christian. Faith, love, and hope. And so there is a sense of certainty That Paul wants to communicate to the church in Thessalonica that because you have shown evidence that the gospel has taken hold of your lives, you can trust in the coming of Christ as a day where you will obtain salvation and be with Christ forever. It is a truth for them. It is a reality for them. But make no mistake about it, the language here of of breastplate and helmet is war-type language He is reminding them and he is reminding us, dear friends, that we are at war today. Not a physical war, but a war against principalities of darkness, of spiritual forces. And so when he says here to be sober, he's telling us not to be idle. To not just sit back as this war unfolds before us, but that we would fight for holiness and we would preach Christ in this lost and dying world. In other words, don't get caught up in civilian civilian affairs. You are at war. A soldier at the battlefield is not checking his Facebook posts. A soldier at the battlefield is not worried about a five-course meal. No, he has his mind set on the task at hand. He is sober. He is self-controlled, and we should be and do the same. Finally, the the last point of application here from the text is that in light of the coming day of the Lord as the church, we are to encourage and build one another up. We see this in verse 11. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Very similar language to what we saw at the end of chapter 4, verse 13. Therefore, encourage one another with these Words, as we wait for Christ's return, we are to encourage and build one another up. 
As we close, I want us to consider these two words. First, the word there, encourage. This is the same word in the Greek that was used earlier in chapter 3, verse 2, where Paul said he sent Timothy to establish and exhort them, or encourage them, or comfort them. Which is also the same word that we saw in verse 7 of chapter 3, where Paul says that they were comforted by them through their faith in the midst of their affliction. So he says that we are to be about comforting one another in Christ as we wait for the Lord's return. So not only do we find comfort in the return of the Lord, but we are able to comfort one another when we have this certainty of Christ's return in our view, this eternal perspective. So as we mentioned last week in the application, that we sing about this, we talk about this amongst ourselves and in our homes of of Christ coming, the things of God, having an eternal focus, that we would be a church that our conversation amongst ourselves is not limited to sports and the weather, but that we would talk about the things of God. That does not mean we shouldn't talk about sports and weather, but our conversation should be driven and grounded in the reality of the truth of who Christ is, what he's done, and what he has promised to do. The second thing that he tells us there, encourage one another and build one another up. Build up means to edify or to confirm each other in this particular truth, that we would speak in such a way to one another that we would edify and build up one another to look more and more like Jesus in regards to all of the teachings of the gospel, but in particular here, the coming of Christ. Are your conversations with your brothers and sisters in Christ edifying? Are they building up and encouraging one another that we would look more and more like Jesus? It's quite interesting that this idea of building one another up, edifying one another by talking about the coming of the Lord is the application here because oftentimes... In talking about the coming of the Lord, in our differences of interpretation of the end times, we tend to not edify but to tear down. It's kind of ironic. Depending on how aware you are of end times theology and what that looks like, uh, there has been debates throughout church history on some of these issues. And most of them, I would say, would be edifying, but it is there's potential in our conversation about theological issues that are more secondary, not the essentials. If we're not careful to, instead of build each other up, to tear each other down. Trying to impress with our knowledge of theological topics or being divisive or controversial for the sake of argument. It's good for us to talk about theology, and we should. It's good for us to talk about the coming of Christ, and we should. But we need to be mindful of, in all of our conversations, whatever the topic is at hand, are we building up our brothers and sisters in Christ, or are we causing division? Are we tearing them down? Something we should be mindful of. That as we wait for Christ's return, we are to comfort one another and to build one another up and edify each other to look more and more like Jesus. I've been talking about end times theological views, and again, depending on how aware you are of those things. You, you've probably heard terms like uh, all-millennial, uh, pre-millennial, post-millennial. Uh, 
these different views. And I heard a joke recently that there should be a fourth view that we introduce into these terms, and that is pan-millennial, meaning everything's just going to pan out, and we should just all get along. As much as I would love to add that as a fourth and official view to end times theology, it's good and right for us to think about these things. It is important for us as the church to consider the truth and the reality of Christ coming. As I've mentioned, it gives us purpose, it gives us hope, it gives us comfort that this is all just not a rock moving through space with no point. That God in his sovereignty has set a moment in time where Christ will return and we live our lives in view of that reality. That God is indeed at work and there is an end goal and it is his glory and his glory alone. And so, dear friends, we can disagree on some of these issues, but may we know the essentials of these things. May we live our days awake and sober in the midst of a dark and fallen world because Christ is coming again. Settle in that truth. This this is not fiction. This is not fable. The atheist wants us to think we talk about these things to make us feel better about ourselves. Dear friend, this is true. Rest in the hope and the glory and the purpose of Christ's return. And in the meantime, be faithful. Let's pray.